0: Sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose.
1: We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Eric Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week we are joined by another legend in the broadcasting business, lead sideline reporter for CBS Network. With the NFL, college basketball has covered multiple Super Bowls and college Final Fours. Joining us live from New Jersey, Tracy Wolfson. Tracy, it's so good to have you on Rabbi on the Sidelines.
0: Thank you, Rabbi. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So excited.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, we followed you over the many years. And actually, as you can see behind me with Carmelo Anthony, I'm a Syracuse <laughs> guy here. And uh, 2003 was a big year for us. But to watch you on the sidelines is uh, I would say not just legendary and insightful, but an amazing inspiration in terms of the stories that you bring to the public audience. And it's much different, I think, than being, you know, in the booth. So let's begin, as we say, from Ma'alin Bakodish uh, velo Moridin, that we should go up in holiness and uh, not down. Let's start first with your journey into the sports world, and we'll cross that path of faith uh, very shortly as well. So you have said that your job is not typical and you have uh, said also that when you were a young girl, you looked at Lamar Rashad and Willow Bay and said, that's what I'm going to do, and you did it. Not many yeah. of us get to simply look at somebody <laughs> and say, I'm going to do it. So how'd you do it?
0: Yeah. Uh, as I said, it was not a typical path. But uh, First off, when I was you know, first interested in sports, I was about seven, eight years old. I was a tomboy. Not sure if we can use that word anymore, but I still say that's you know what I was. I was obsessed with sports. I loved playing with it. I loved watching it. My parents would find me in my room being like, what are you doing? I'd be recording myself. Uh, I, it was a dream of mine since I was about seven, eight years old and specifically Willow Bay because she she's a woman and I didn't couldn't imagine that you can do that as a female. The problem was I had no mentors to look up to in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to reach out and say, how do I do this? How do I go about it? What is the path I should take? And so I really had to find it myself and uh, went to the University of Michigan. Uh, solely not only, of course, because it was the best academic school that I could get into, but also I knew I'd be surrounded by big time sports Mm. and figured that would be a path. As Syracuse grad, um, you know, Newhouse is really the way that a lot of people enter the business. I didn't even know about Newhouse when I Uh was, you know, going (laughs) through my path. You know, I didn't have anyone to ask and say, this is what I'm interested in. What should I do? Got to the University of Michigan, and fortunately, um, the communications department had some internships, uh, and through that, I was able to get a lot of hands-on, uh, you know, experience. And then I was a runner for CBS when they would come and do basketball games and football games, and really was able to get my foot in the door that way. Um, when I say it's not a typical path, it's because when I graduated, I didn't have a tape, so I mm-hmm. had absolutely. No, you know, nothing to show to say, this is what I want to do. But people are like, well, how do we know you could do it? Right. So I basically was a researcher for CBS for a year. I left to go be an agent for a year. I was a sports producer for a year. And then I made a fake tape. And I sent it all across the country. And I got one job in Trenton, New Jersey. And fortunately, I didn't have to pick (laughs) up and move across the country like many do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I you know, made a fake tape. I got my first job and that opened up the doors for me to get in front of the camera.
1: So you mentioned about not having a role model in the female world. Um, I've been honored to host one of your mentors, which is Andrea Kramer on the show as well. But this is what you said when you uh, were interviewed, I believe, last year on a summit by Mark Zumoff from Philadelphia and the idea of uh, finding a female mentor.
0: About Willow Bay. She was really one of the few women out there that I was able to really watch and learn from and model myself after. Uh, There was no cable network for me. And it was really hard to learn from a female and know kind of, and and just have role models. So I didn't really grow up with a role model that I was able to kind of feed off of and get advice from and say, how do I manage and navigate all of this? So I really did a lot of that on my own until I, I, joined CBS, and Leslie Visser uh, became a, a huge role model and a huge help to me. But it is completely different. There were, you know, a handful of women back then, and now every time you turn on the TV, you see women covering sports.
1: So what is your message to the younger generation of females who love sports, who want to be the next, not Leslie Visser, but the next Tracy Wolfson? How do they do it?
0: So first off, you know, find your mentors. I think it's really important. Make your contacts. And that goes really for anyone in any business. Contacts are really going to to really help you with the process. They're going to open the door for you. They're going to give advice. And in my business specifically, it's extremely important to have someone you could lean on and and ask, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, as a woman. I mean, there's a lot of women I mentor who don't even navigate, don't know how to navigate being a woman and being a mother and being on the sidelines and traveling every weekend and leaving their families. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. that goes into that. So I would say, I say to a lot of young women out there, uh, I think, and and this goes, like I said, for anyone, first off, be very versatile, you know, understand that there's so many things out there and be willing to kind of, uh, you know, do a little bit of everything till you find your path. And then I think second of all, you got to know your stuff you really do. I mean, this is a business where you're going to be challenged every day and scrutinized. And if you don't know your stuff, you will be exposed, whether you are a woman or male, but I think more so as a female in this business. Um, And the third thing, it's really simple and just be a great teammate. Mm -hmm. Don't be a diva, be, be really easy to work with. And, you know, be someone that people want to work alongside at all times. And I do believe I've had longevity in this business, not because I do a good job. I I think that's of course, part of the reason, but I think also people enjoy working alongside me. People trust Mm -hmm. me. Uh, Those that I interview, the coaches, the players, trust me. They know that I, I know what I'm talking about. I'm putting my time, I'm putting my research in. I think that's really important teamwork. You know, we, we think about it when it comes to sports and, but obviously in in work and in, in whether it's a, a temple and what you're doing or whether it's a business and a corporation, whether it's just a class that you're taking, teamwork is is ultimately the most important thing.
1: So so much of what you said, and you could be speaking to rabbinical students right now <laughs> in terms of not just the teamwork, but the scrutinization and what you say really matters in every moment and not just in the moment but in fact with live streaming and every single sermon is now there forever yeah. and so even though it's live television it's also archived um, streaming which really um, makes you prepare as well in terms of what you want to say and also who your audience is. well so you speak about trust and not only do the people that work alongside you have the trust but the athletes seem also have amazing trust in you You have worked with GOATs, the greatest of all times. And one of those is, of course, Tom Brady. This is an interview that you had with him. And I would love to think about, are you preparing for the moment after the game, even though the game, you don't know what's going to happen? And what does that look like? And this is an interview with Tom Brady
0: you do best. 44 seconds left and you drive 60 yards down the field. Just take me through what you saw on that final drive. We made some good plays. Cade made a great catch up the seam to start the drive. Um, Scotty made a few. Then we got in the end zone. Mike got the PI and then great call by Byron. So it was a great win. (laughs) Way to go, baby.
1: Well, it's not just about the words that they say, but it's about the actions that are happening that you can't even expect. Take us to the post-game moments because you can't prepare for the last second thing and then all of a sudden you're on life.
0: No, you can't. Uh, you could go in, you are prepared, right? But you can go in with some ideas of how you think it might turn out and what you might ask and what the line of questioning may be. But ultimately, that's all going to go out the window, especially when you have a game like that. And so um, you, I really go in, Again, it goes back to really knowing the game. You really have to be in tune with it, what happened, the ebbs and the flows, the pinnacle moments of those games, being able to pick those out and reference those back. And mm-hmm. I always go into a post-game interview, and it's kind of like a routine for me. You're going to ask about that pinnacle moment or that, that game-changing play and, and what happened down the stretch. And, and then you're going to basically talk about maybe a specific player maybe the play of Tom Brady, or it might be a play of a quarter. I think following up that, I probably did ask about a specific receiver or the defense and how they played. And then afterwards, you're going to kind of do a general wrap-up question in a sense of maybe looking forward, and what does this do to the team, or how did this help you in your standings? So you really go in with an idea, but you never know how the game's going to play out. And, And especially, certainly, those moments when you have those last second wins or those drives down the field or a game, you know, a shot at the buzzer, uh, you have to quickly formulate your questions. And the key thing is getting the emotion out of mm-hmm. the players. And to me, that's the best part. My job is really to just tee it up. It's not about how much I know, not about throwing in as many stats as I can. It's about really giving them a good question so that it allows them to speak. It shows their emotion and it gives them the platform because ultimately that's what the fans want to see.
1: Actually, it's interesting what you say about emotion. My senior rabbi, Rabbi David Wolpe, always says that when you speak to an audience or a congregation, what they're going to remember is how they feel and not necessarily the words and the facts that you tell them. And so bringing emotion out is really, uh, is crucial. And then how do you balance though? Because sometimes you have to ask, I don't want to say controversial questions, but questions yeah. about things that might not be the most comfortable. And then you have to go back to them the next time and say, <laughs> in, a, in a beautiful way, you know, you just won a Super Bowl, but they're going to probably remember that last one. How do you build that trust so that, they, they understand that you're both doing your job and it's also what the public uh, needs to hear?
0: It's a great question. And you go back to that trust. And I think when I've covered coaches and players over and over again, they've come to the point after 18 years on the sidelines that Mm -hmm. they do trust me and they know I'm asking what needs to be asked. And I think it's the way you ask it. Also, there are always those times and we get it in basketball. Why didn't you call a timeout? This is after. And by the way, I've done a lot of losing interviews, too. You know, right after they lose the final four, I have to go do that interview. Those are the toughest interviews I have to do. And, you know, you really do have to you know, present that question in the right way and at the right mm-hmm. time. And I always like to give them the chance to answer that question first. And then if they don't answer it, then I ask it. So, for example, if, if down the stretch they didn't call that timeout and you're asking why and you think that maybe they should have and that's the rhetoric coming out of the game, what happened down the stretch? Let them say, I should have called a timeout. And if mm-hmm. they don't say that then you follow up, you know, was there a thought of taking a timeout there? And I think that's the most important thing to keep the trust. Ask, believe me, you have to ask the questions that need to be asked or else mm-hmm. you're the one who, who's going to look, you know, silly out there. And mm-hmm. everyone's going to say, why didn't she ask that question? You have to ask those tough questions. But I've come to the fact that I actually relish being in those moments because it does challenge you. And as long as you hold your ground and you do ask the right question in a respectful manner, you should get the best possible response.
1: So you and, said- they, and they
0: should understand that.
1: So you said the uh, role of the reporter is to tee it up. And I know I'm uh, interviewing <laughs> a reporter. So that walked right into this next clip because one of those people that you interviewed, which I would say is a hero in the basketball world, but also in the American sports scene is Coach K. And you wow. had the opportunity to interview him at the last moment um, after he lost to UNC his last game. And this is what you said. And I think it has a moment of faith and we're gonna cross that line right now.
0: Coach, as you walked off the court for the final time, can you describe the emotions that you were feeling?
1: Uh, Just for my players. You know, I'll deal with me later. Uh, You know, uh,
0: know, yeah. for me, my entire time coaching, I always wanted at the end of the year or whatever the last game is where you're either crying for
1: joy or you're crying for sorrow. Um, And if you are, that means you've put
0: everything into it. And I have a, a bunch of kids who are crying, and I'm proud of them. They've been a joy to coach and they've played winning
1: basketball and they did tonight too, but, uh, so did the other team. That is such a, not only Jewish message, but theological message that basically the book of Ecclesiastes says, we read that on two coat, there's a time to cry. There's a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cry, a time to laugh. And he nailed it. That, that locker room, every March madness, one shiny moment is like a Yom Kippur moment for me. Um, That like it, not everybody's going to cry for joy, but most people are going to cry for tears. So in that moment of Coach K knowing that it was the last time you stepped off that floor, I was crying watching it, watching you. (laughs) Um, How do you come up with that moment and what does Coach K mean to the college basketball scene even today?
0: It was a really emotional moment for me as well. And I'll take you back because I talked about being a researcher for CBS. I talked about my senior year when I was a runner for CBS. One of the opportunities I got as a senior at the University of Michigan was to cover March Madness in the final four. I went to New York, I did March Madness and then I got the opportunity to be in Indianapolis, cover the final four and who was there, but Coach K and his Duke Mm -hmm. team. They didn't win it that year. Uh, That was Arizona. But my job was to pick coach k and his wife mickey up from the airport
1: oh wow And so
0: that was the first time i met coach k and so i our relationship started then and then to then finally live out my dream get on the air and have that moment where that's the bookend of his Mm -hmm. career and Mickey, his wife, when I finally got in the air and she was at a final four that I was at, I went over to her and I'm like, Mickey, you know, I don't know if you remember, she goes, oh my God, you actually lived, you know, out your dream, what you wanted to wow. do. So I've had a, a lot of moments with Mike Krzyzewski, um, been through a lot of his ups and his downs and, and followed his whole career and respect him so much. And there's that trust factor again. And, you know, a lot of people are very nervous to interview him or be around him and Certainly in that moment, I knew that moment was going to come. It -hmm. would have been a storybook ending for them to win the whole thing and not have that as so-called losing interview uh, after the game. So I was definitely conscious of when that moment was going to be and what the tone should be and what the question should be. And I'm going to tell you, I thought we'd do one question and let him talk and leave because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to intrude on that moment he was so gracious and he stood there for, you know, several minutes and allowed me to kind of keep going. And I had to kind of go off the fly there because I didn't know when he wanted to wrap it up. And, and he seemed like he just wanted to stick around and savor that moment also. And that was a special one. I appreciate you, you know, putting that up there cause I haven't seen it since mm. then. And, um, it brought back a lot of memories and, and definitely emotional one for me as well.
1: It wasn't Ernie in your ear saying, Tracy, we're done or right, to keep it going.
0: <laughs> no, you know, usually a lot of times they just have me record those and they don't talk oh, to me or anything. So if I remember correctly, I think that one might have gone directly to the studio. But whatever it was, there was no one in my ear saying wrap mm. up or next question or. You asked them about this. Uh, I think they just trusted me in that moment. And, I I know, and, and in
1: those moments, even after a loss, you see the humanity of these human beings. And one of those people that I really do look up to and has been a very good family friend of ours is Coach Bayheim. I know with the media, it's a little different sometimes, <laughs> especially after uh, thankfully we won one and got the uh, horse off our back in 2003. But maybe speak of a person like him who I saw him actually as a brother of a special needs individual, what he did for our family and the community and people like Coach K and people like Roy Williams. Maybe see what humanity have you seen off the court that really even should encourage us to say that sports is not just about what you see on the court, but it's really about making a difference in this world.
0: No doubt. And I think you see that. You see the individuals and coaches and people that they are off the court all the time and You know, I I don't get a chance to spend a lot of time with these coaches away from the court, Mm -hmm. but I certainly, you know, read and hear and watch as much as I can. And you see whether they're wearing sneakers to raise money for cancer or my cause, my cleats in the NFL right now where they're trying to, you know, bring attention to certain organizations they're involved in. And you can pick out every coach. Um, out there that has a cause that they truly believe in and they are special off the field. You talked about Ernie Johnson and and the Mm -hmm. things that he has done and and how he's influenced your life and a a mentor and a friend that he is to you. And I I mean, he's just a perfect example, not a coach, but a, a, you know, a national figure, a personality that does so many incredible things that you wouldn't know because you just watch him maybe on TNT, you know, during those pregame you know, post game shows. So I do think there's so much of that. You bring up Beheim, and there are several coaches I always get nervous about. <laughs> and fortunately, over the years, they've mellowed out with me. But he was one I remember in the beginning, I was so nervous to ask him questions at halftime. And now, you know, in those last few years, uh, he's been great coming over and, you know, just talking and loose and you know re- again it's that respect factor and that trust you've built over time I work with Bill Raftery another guy oh, who uh, the best of the best salt of the earth and he's got these relationships yep. with Bayheim and with Jay Wright and I can go down the list and um, and that helps things. As well, no doubt. You just
1: got to make it clear that Julie Beheim definitely helped in those aspects with the media. Is that correct? Oh, she's <laughs>
0: fabulous. She and what she has
1: done in the community with the Jim and Julie Beheim Foundation—unbelievable and truly a mentor to follow in uh, in all the work that we do as well. Yeah,
0: so, and I, think, I, I think you're right. Well, and one other thing, I think that they have these this platform, just like players do, but coaches mm-hmm. do have a platform also. And I think the fact that. You know, they can take advantage of that. People look up to it and see that they're not just coaches or maybe curmudgeons at times or, you know, you know, guys who are cursing in huddles. But they really do have, you know, a a life and a personality and a family and a cause off the court, off the field as well.
1: And so another piece of your life outside of the sidelines reporting is your Jewish piece. And you can simply go online and find your commitment, specifically to the Kaplan JCC in the Palisades, I believe. Um, tell us about that Jewish journey first, and then we're going to maybe see if they uh, do intersect and how those intersect in a deep way.
0: Yeah, I, I grew up Jewish. Uh, my Both of my parents, I was very interested in the Jewish culture and Hebrew school. I was reform, went to a Reform temple, but I really loved it. I was passionate about it. I always enjoyed my time in Hebrew school. I love the tradition. Everybody hear
1: that? Tracy Wilson I, I enjoyed did. her I was time a total in Hebrew nerd. school.
0: I was a complete nerd. I mean, my three boys go to Hebrew school now and believe me, they will complain sometimes when they have to go, but <laughs> I loved it. I embraced it. I love the traditions That Judaism brings. And that's what it is family traditions. I always love the high holidays and being with my family and the cousins and all together making Passover. And this, my family's, one side of my family's Yemenite. So bringing in those Yemenite traditions um, was really meaningful, especially in Passover. And so I tried, I've tried to carry that over. Um, over time with my family as well and my three boys. I think it's really important and I want to make sure that when they go off and start a family that they have their own traditions and they realize how important faith is. And it doesn't mean you have to be in temple every Friday because I cannot be in temple every Friday. And believe me, I was just talking to my mom about this the other day is Shabbat to me. I wish that I had the opportunity to have Shabbat every Friday. I'm always Mm. gone on the road. It's a tradition I wish we had with our family because I love it. But I I do see so many friends that do get that opportunity to really just spend that time on Fridays together, Jen Osfeld being one of them. But unfortunately, my life doesn't work that way. But that's okay. And even if I may miss a holiday or, you know, a bar mitzvah, I make sure that um, we make up for that time together. So it's really important to me getting involved in the JCC as well. I was... um, I was on a board for a very long time. I'm, I'm slowly rolling off to that. Just got involved with Israel lacrosse, bringing lacrosse to Israel. My son was just there in, in February on a service trip as well through uh, the federation, the Jewish federation here. So I'm finding other ways to stay involved and also pass it on to my my kids.
1: So you mentioned Israel and obviously you're in the college basketball world and what Bruce Pearl's doing with Apples yeah. for Israel is amazing. <laughs> And actually he, when he played, uh, USC played Auburn, I called Br- Coach Pearl and said, there is no way that you're coming to Los Angeles and not coming to Sinai Temple. And he oh, came after <sighs> practice and he came into the Kiddush and people are like, who, who is this guy? We're all wearing suits and he's wearing an Auburn sweatsuit. And he said, <laughs> I'm Coach Bruce Pearl, but right now I am Mordechai Ben Dov. And uh, he explained his connection to his grandfather in Poland that did not have an Israel. And he said, there's no uh, way that that's not going to happen again. And last year, of course, he brought Jay Billis to Israel. And Jay had been on the show previously, and he said, I'm not a man of faith. And when Jay went to Israel, I called him. I said, Jay, you're coming back on the show because what you did is so much more than simply a basketball game and floating in the Dead Sea. So when you see guys like Bruce Pearl and now um, actually, I believe, Syracuse and Kansas, I believe, are going this summer to Israel. What is that connection in terms of showing these athletes, mostly African-American Christian athletes? The joy and the importance of what Judaism can bring, not just to the sports world, but to the world. And like you said, their platform, they can use that platform to bring people together and not divide them.
0: I think it's fabulous what Bruce Pearl has been doing. And I think you're going to see more and more teams doing that. It is a way to bond and it's not just Judaism. As you mentioned, Mm -hmm. there's so many religions and cultures that intersect in Israel. And I think anyone can take out, take away from that, but they could also, it's a chance for them to learn, learn about Judaism as well, learn about Israel and learn about, you know, all the history that is involved and Bruce Pearl and I, I, Covered him this year in the tournament, and we had a conversation earlier, and then came back, and I brought up our conversation. This was all live on TV, and he goes, "I'm so glad that we could kibitz because I, I remember know. about our conversation earlier, and I love that he's throwing out some words out there, and so he is a mensch, um, no doubt, and and I do think it's it's great that you know sports and and Judaism and and culture and Israel and. And all religions can kind of intersect. It it doesn't really matter, you know, what your faith is, but faith in general, I think is really important personally. Everyone doesn't believe in it, but personally, faith is important to me. And I rely on that a lot, especially during hard times when I'm on the road, when I'm struggling, when I'm stressed, when I miss my family, or when when we are spending and celebrating together Mm -hmm. you know whether it is a a bar mitzvah i took my son my oldest son we went to israel for his bar mitzvah and that was an extremely extremely special moment and i can't wait to go back when was that uh that was 2000 he's 17 now so that's four years ago
1: and so the bruce pearl is actually fascinating because it was at last year when the ukraine war had just started on the dais of march madness he told the story of Purim. And his name being Mordecai and what that meant in relation. And that was, it went viral, not because it was March Madness, but because he had the platform in that moment to actually do that as well. So it's a beautiful thing to see from our community that leads to a, a greater thing as well. Um, when you talk about faith and sports and your journey, we're obviously talking on a quote unquote rabbinic show. Uh, but does that journey ever come out either live and not live, but on the air or behind the scenes in terms of? who you are in that faith aspect as well. I mean, this year we talked about Kyrie Irving and what he did. And actually it was Ernie Johnson that reached out that said, we need a rabbi to talk about this on the show. And there, I don't think there had been a rabbi on Inside the NBA before. And it was a very proud moment that faith was coming, not in somebody's face, but as I said in that moment, it's a time to engage and not disengage. Are there moments at all over that career that said, you know what, this is who I am and this is how I need to speak out right now.
0: You know, it's interesting. You said that we did have a moment during um, the co- I don't speak on those issues because that's not my platform. I usually mm-hmm. am on a sideline covering a game, so it doesn't really, you know, come into play, let's say, um, unless, of course, you know, someone is fasting for Yom Kippur and not playing. If that was a story, we would be discussing it. We had that with Ramadan in
1: Hebrew school.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: This past year, two UConn players fasting a Ramadan. I thought that was unbelievable.
0: Yes, exactly. So that was that was no doubt covered. Um, I do have a show called We Need to Talk, and we often it's an all female sports show, but it we have a lot of different you know cultures and religions and, and people in, in different positions and former you know Olympics athletes, gold medalists, CEOs, you name it, all on the show that come together with different backgrounds, and so those type of uh, that show. Sometimes provides us the opportunity to talk about mm-hmm. our faith, to talk about the opinion. Um, we did have a show where we were going to talk about Kyrie, and Lisa Leslie said to me, "You know, I always have to speak on, you know, being an African, uh, being black, and and what it means in this world, and the struggles that I've had. How come you can't talk on wow. Kyrie and how it affects you?" And I, w- I was so appreciative of her saying that to me. It really meant a lot, and she's right you know and i was very passionate i almost was too passionate that i didn't i was hesitant to talk on it i didn't know where it would go and um it i became really emotional about it and mm-hmm. i didn't know where that came from and i think it was partially because i'm not used to speaking on those issues mm-hmm. it was different for me it was uncomfortable for me and not uncomfortable to speak on being jewish uncomfortable on tackling those issues on a on a national platform because that's not normally my role and I was—we were ready to to tackle that issue. And then, with timing, there was going to be something coming out. I think uh, he was speaking with the NBA Kyrie that day, and the timing of the show would not have worked if we if we talked about it at that moment. So we wound up, you know, um, scrapping that whole segment. Mm. Um, but we had a very good open conversation amongst all of us on that show with differences of opinions. Right. And everyone had a difference of opinion. Lisa and I had a different opinion. Summer Sanders and I had a different opinion. I think maybe um, Aditi Kinkabala was on the show. She had a different opinion. So we did all spend that time sharing, which was really good for me. It was good to just talk about it openly um, in a different, like I said, in a different forum, rather than just sitting around with my friends and my family discussing it. I think that was that was a growth period for me, no Thank doubt. You.
1: That same day, I was in the NBA studios, and they called, and I walked in, and it was Vince Carter, Richard Jefferson, Malik Andrews, and Shanae Ogomike. and off the air, Shanae goes, Rabbi, I want to let you know, my best friend is Catholic, and, sorry, my best friend is Jewish, and there is nothing like a Shabbat dinner, and then Vince <laughs> Carter says, Rabbi, you know, my mom's very involved in the Episcopalian Church in Daytona, and I was like, guys, these are the stories that you, with your platform, need to share, because I'm not... The expert in your field on the sports field and I'm at your desk right now. I'm more of the expert in the religious field, but these are combining and it's interesting because, um, you know, when people hear a rabbi talk about sports, oh, it's, you know, a cute little thing, but actually Solomon Schechter, the first conservative rabbi in America, um, said that you can't be a rabbi in this country without speaking about baseball. And he didn't mean just sports, but he meant the American experience is interwoven with sports. And it seems like, at least for all the people that I've spoken to over the last two years, and they are major figures in your world, say that there are elements in the world of sports that are very faith-based that couldn't happen um, without it. Whether it's team camaraderie, sacredness in the locker room, or or what you have. So what avenue or what aspects of faith have you seen in those locker rooms or on those courts, besides simply thanking the Lord above after a, a win, because... As uh, as as Dave Sims told me, the guy in left field is often not thanking God for dropping the left field, the left, uh, the pop up <laughs> as well.
0: Yeah, I mean you do see that often, and it, but it takes. Um, I think it's there's a lot of pregame prayer, there's a lot of postgame prayer, there's a lot of prayer during <laughs> practice, but it's really it doesn't. It's not about what faith you are. It's really all coming together, joining mm-hmm. hands, doing something together. Um, having a conversation, I think there's a lot of that. And and during all this, whether it was anti-Semitism, whether it was the riots, whether it's a black and white issue, there's been so much open conversation in locker rooms more and more. And I think that's so important so that teams are on the same page. We saw with Kalen Kaepernick how it divided a lot of teams, how everyone needed to come together. The NFL, there was a lot of division going through it at that time. And there still is. And it's just about communication, being open and whether it means coming together, you know, holding hands and, and thanking God or, you know, it, or just finding that time to really get on that same page. I think um, there are so many intertwined thoughts and ideas between sports and faith. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're about to go onto a court and you want to believe just believe. It doesn't matter what you believe in. Just believe. Mm-hmm. I think that word is very strong. It's thrown out there a lot. Um, but it doesn't mean you you have to believe in a, a certain in God or a certain God or your faith. It just means you have to believe. And I think it's a way of of getting everyone together on the same page. And and we talked about teamwork. We talked about teams, those teams that are all um, on the same you know, in the same belief of their team, like just the same faith of their team. Those are the best, those are the best teams out there. And it doesn't matter what talent level you have. I see it on the sidelines all the time. If they're not all intertwined, if they're not all on the same page, they're never going to be successful. It doesn't matter if you have the best quarterback out there, but if, if everyone's not on the same page, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a really difficult season. And Uh I, yeah.
1: And when you talk about belief and faith in March Madness, a 16 versus one, if that's not <laughs> faith and belief with uh, it was FI, uh, FAU this year um, and St. Peter's last year, take us through uh, the role of a 16 Cinderella and the role of faith and belief after they win that first game that they can keep going and going and going.
0: Well I did the first one when Virginia knocked when Virginia Oof. lost to UMBC that was the first oh. time A16 had beaten a1 and speaking of faith Tony Bennett is one of the you know he is a very faithful really you know believes in um, you know pra- the power of prayer and I remember watching him he's one of my favorite coaches to sit outside the huddle and watch. First of all, he's mm-hmm. the nicest guy on the planet. He really You're
1: is. You're not the first person to say this on the show. So uh, hopefully really? uh, Coach Bennett will be on the show shortly. He
0: is the nicest, nicest guy. And I felt an like an immediate connection with him. And you watch him and you can see his belief. You can see his faith. You can see his pride. You could see it. And it just like emanates from him. He has this like, I, it's the weirdest thing I tell everyone. He has this aura about him but in that moment at the end of that game it was like the the players and him it was blank there was mm. nothing there and i was waiting and waiting and waiting for it and you didn't see it there was no one standing up and saying something there was it was really quiet and you could just you can sense you know all the momentum had shifted and they couldn't get it back and so they had faith You know, that Mm -hmm. 16 seed UMBC, they had faith. They all came together, even though no one believed. And um, and that's when the number one goes down. Uh, That's just how it is. And, yeah, you continue to have the faith to keep it going. Um, Sometimes it does. And sometimes, you know, the talent and the disparity just catch up to you. But there is, you know, something really special when it comes to that, you know, believing and that faith and how far it can get you, especially Mm -hmm. in a tournament like that.
1: Well, the biggest thing about that game has made me forget about Syracuse Richmond 15-2 as a little child. So uh, <laughs> there's some uh, PTSD We've all been in that moment.
0: to that. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, go back to football for a second because this idea of faith comes often in tragedy. I'm just going to go to Pittsburgh for a moment when uh, Stay Stronger Together, when the Tree of Life shooting happened. And the Steelers and the NFL decided to do something like that. Bob Kraft, who gives $75 million to fight anti-Semitism right now. And even the Panthers of the Pitt basketball team, I was watching Syracuse Pitt during that couple months after. And each one of them right here on their jersey had a, a Magin David, a Jewish star. And I reached out to Coach Tim O'Toole, the assistant at Pitt at that time, who had been at Syracuse when I was a kid. And I said, again, same thing. That small thing means so much more than just this basketball game. So maybe take us back to some of these tragedies, you know, that, or like when uh, I interviewed Dan Shulman and he announced on the air that Osama bin Laden was caught, um, that these moments of sports when millions of people are watching are often times when world events happen and you and your colleagues are in charge of announcing it to the world. Are there moments of that that you, um, have been a part of and what it meant for you to bring people together in those moments.
0: Yeah. And it, it's our job to also to bring, you know, the attention to all of these, you know, tragedies, these issues when we're on this public forum and doing it in the right manner, doing it. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time when you're covering mm-hmm. a game. It's, it's the one thing that's really difficult is that you want to dig in a little deep. You want to do an interview. You want to really speak on it. Um, or, or talk about a story that a player is involved. Um, who might've been involved in the tree of life who might've been involved in a mass shooting who who might've had a a cousin or a friend or who donated a ton of money. It's hard to get those stories out. Usually Mm -hmm. comes on our pregame show. It's a great forum for that. We can do that before we could do a sit down. We can dedicate the time and the attention to it. Um, Bob craft has become a really good friend of mine having, you know, covered the Patriots so many times, (laughs) especially when was Brady was there. And, um, and and what he's done, I think, has been incredible. Um, not only he just for, went on
1: March of the Living to Poland a couple of weeks ago.
0: Uh, he really it, it is, and I think it's and everyone sees it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's they feed off of that as well. And we just went through the same thing with with what happened with Damar Hamlin yes. on the sideline. And so I didn't do that game, but I did the the next three games that followed it, and I was in Buffalo for those two games directly afterwards, and it was a lot. It was extremely emotional. It was, you know, a lot of work trying to make sure you convey the right ideas and and what's exactly happening and also showing the support and how the NFL all came together. And I think that's so important with what's going on in our world right now that sports can all come together. Players Mm -hmm. can come together. Coaches, teams can come together. and, And during this, during tragedies, during tough moments, um, and I, I think that's what's really nice about it, unifying everyone. And it also provides entertainment. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just need that. I, I had Joe Torrey on the show, um, on our We Need to Talk show, and we talked about 9-11 and getting back to mm-hmm. play baseball right after. And if you remember, the Yankees were a huge part of that.
1: I was he in New York during that year. Yep.
0: He said we just needed it. We needed mm-hmm. to do that, um, you know, for our country. And so I think there's a lot to that, too, as as the sports world just tries to provide you know, some entertainment and take our minds off all the difficulties happening in our world right now.
1: No, and some of those stories are just so uplifting. In fact, that was the reason why I did reach out to Ernie, because in 2020, during COVID, he told a beautiful story about Michael, a son of blessed memory. And I reached out saying, you have no idea who I am, but you touch my soul and I need to talk to you. And we became uh, acquaintances since. And even the story this past year didn't get so much attention, but the Steve Fisher son on the sidelines of San Diego State who, uh, is as I forgot what the disease is right now, ALS. And the first time he traveled, I mean, those stories are what says, you know what? Asics all the way. Um, how do you find those stories? And as you said, in that limited amount of time, decide to tell me, say, uh, tell me those stories to say, this is really what matters.
0: Yeah. So, um, You know, basically, first off, it goes by through all the research that we do. I mean, Mm -hmm. you especially in during March Madness, you really don't have a lot of time because you're you don't know who's going to win. And you have about two or three days to to regroup. And that Sunday when you get all of your eight teams, I mean, you have to prepare for eight teams in four days. That's probably the most challenging. But those games, especially during March Madness early on, you want to tell stories because especially a lot of those teams, you're not going to see again. They might Mm be a 15, 16, 14 seed that, you know, you've never even heard of the school. You don't even know where the school is. And they have so many stories to tell. And that's your, your goal is to, you know, bring, you know, humanize these players and really show what they do off the field and, and off the, you know, off the court for that matter. And so um, with Steve Fisher and I, I'm a Michigan grad, I Mm -hmm. I know him well. I know the story. Well, I've, I've been involved in uh, there's a, basketball, the alumni basketball team at Michigan raises money every year for ALS because of Steve Fisher and his son. And um, so he, they were around us for that whole week. And it was really good that we can figure out ways to, to get that story and you have to do it as a team. So Mm -hmm. Jim Nance is the best storyteller in television. So he might be the one to, you know, start it. And I might be able to add, this is what he's doing on the sideline, you know, while he's a full on coach, by Mm -hmm. the way, Mm-hmm. And it was his first time traveling, but he normally is at home texting and and getting information and saying what he's seeing. And so I think it, you all just work together to try and fit that story in. And if you don't have the time on the sidelines, it's OK to get it done in the booth. Um, that's really the role of the producer, trying to find the best possible way of getting these stories in without taking away from too much of the game. And in basketball, it's such a quick game. It's really hard to find those moments um, to tell those stories, because next thing you know you know there's a big decisive three and and we missed the moment, so right. you really have to find the right timing of it, um, but we, you work together as a as a team, <laughs> the guys in the booth and myself on the sidelines
1: and so uh, back to this the uh, ordinary to conclude our program today, we're a split synagogue here, and not Ashkenazic and Sephardic, but actually Trojans and Bruins um, so <laughs> How do we deal with that this year? What do you see uh, as UCLA-USC transition to the Big Ten with now Bronny and Dennis Rodman's son coming over to USC? Uh, what do you see out west for us in the uh, year ahead? And the research that you have to do now based on the transfer portal and NIL, that's insanity. So uh, what does the basketball <laughs> year look like ahead? I know you're just starting the NFL piece.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know what. It's going to be very interesting because, again, being a Michigan grad and now having USC and UCLA, which I'm, I'm happy that there's the two rivalries. You know, you bring another rivalry, and I think it's going to be great. But the travel, I don't know how Those that's long going all work, um, especially with students. I mean, it is a lot. And who else? You know, you don't know how many other teams are going to wind up, you know, coming in, realignment, Pac-12, Big 12, Big 10. Mm. You know, what's going to happen? But I do think it'll be fun. It'll be unique. It'll be different to see, you know, all of a sudden USC and UCLA in the Big Ten playing these teams. But I have no idea. I mean, I'm just excited for something different. I think change is good. It's just a matter of how you go about it. Um, The transfer portal is definitely changing the game. NIL is changing the game. And there's a lot of adjustment, especially in college, you know, basketball and football uh, that needs to take place. Um, And we're going to just we'll see where it goes. But, you know, I think realignment is no doubt happening. You're going to wind up with, you know, three big conferences and, you know, a a bigger college playoff, as we know, is on the horizon. Um, I'm excited to see Bronny. I'm excited to see Dennis's son. Who knows what happens in March Madness? It'll be fun.
1: And what about the NFL now that Brady is officially retired for the second time and just sort of a new crop of talent coming up here any changes also going forward in the NFL that we uh, can look for I know, uh, you know, most of the kids are in Hebrew school so I know they watch you after um, but uh, <laughs> NFL this year what should we expect.
0: Oh, it's going to be, it's quarterback centric, no doubt. And I'm in the AFC, I'm in the AFC being on CBS. So that's what we cover the most. And so, I mean, think about the teams in the AFC. You could talk about the East and Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets. I'm a Jets fan graduate, you know, since I was, you know, six, seven years old, been watching the Jets. So never believe we'd actually get it, you know, have a team that we could root for and be excited for, (laughs) maybe potentially have a chance to make the playoffs. Not going to talk Super Bowl yet, but um, love, the, love Aaron Rodgers coming to the Jets. I think it's a really good thing for him. I think the AFC East is stacked between Buffalo. You got Miami and Tua. Of course, you got always the Patriots. I mean, You have all these young quarterbacks. You, Joe Burrow and Cincinnati, what they've been able to do. Patrick Mahomes, one of the best players I've been around. Really salt-of-the-earth guy, what he's done in Kansas City. I have eight games in Kansas City this year. Wow. I mean, I'm going to just take up residency there. Well, we'll find you um, a we, local
1: we, synagogue too.
0: <laughs> please do. Please do. And, and we will be out, I think, in, in California. I think we'll be um, – we have a Chargers game out there. Oh, nice. So that should be fun. And, um, you know, I think it's just going to be – it's going to be really competitive, especially on that AFC side. Um, it'll be a fun season. It'll have, you know, a lot of talent. And, you know, how these teams are going to emerge at the end of the year remains to be seen. But that's what gets me excited. I still got a few months off. This is my, my quiet time. So I don't like to necessarily like dig in, but got I it. know that August is going to be here before we know it. And I'm going to be so ready to get on that plane and get, get back to football for week one.
1: Well, Tracy Wolfson, I'm going to leave you with the words of uh, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, and that would be Anima Amin. It means I believe, because all the stories that you have told are really about belief, that anything can happen with that faith and belief. But most importantly, it takes teamwork. It takes effort. It takes partnership to uh, not just simply bring entertainment, but also bring inspiration of these amazing stories to this world. Tracy Wolfson, lead sideline reporter for CBS, the NFL, college basketball, college football. We are so honored that you took the time to join us and Rabbi on the Sidelines. When you're out here with the Chargers, make sure that Sinai Temple is your home and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Tracy.
0: Thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate it.